So what we need to start with today is what we ended with last time or what I ended with last time, which is there are a set of oppositions that um, run through and structure Plato's works, not just the Republic, um, but uh, throughout his entire move. And we dealt with a couple of those oppositions last time. Um, talked about the opposition between speech and practice and tried to argue that underlying that opposition between speech and practice was a more fundamental opposition, an opposition between two types of speech, between dialectic and heuristic, or between um, the sort of cooperative argument oriented towards revealing the truth of things and the sort of uh, quarreling argument that's oriented by uh, public esteem. And what structures that opposition between heuristic and dialectic is um, this other set of oppositions. So um, there are three. So the opposition between seeming and being is very important for Plato. The opposition between opinion or belief on the one hand and knowledge on the other. And you can see both of those in all over in books six and seven. And then those are important for then this distinction between heuristic and rhetoric on the one hand and dialectic uh, and philosophy um, on the other hand. And so what I want to do is I want to start out by looking at um, the ones that are aligned with one another on one side, seeming, opinion and belief, uh, heuristic and rhetoric. All of these are associated in um, Plato's works with public esteem. Um, and so there's a connection in Plato between sensing things like seeing, hearing, uh, touching, sensing things and common sense. That is what we say about things, what everybody says, what everybody sees. Um, and there's a powerful critique in Plato of both of those together. Sense and common sense. And that's really what uh, book seven is concerned to um, explicate and to carry through. So the, it, with that in the background, I think the defense of philosophy in book six and uh, the revised education program that takes up most of book seven, they're oriented by a double aim. On the one hand, Plato wants to replace the senses with the intellect as the arbiter of truth. And second, he wants to replace public esteem with dialectic or philosophical argumentation as the arbiter of the good. And those two replacements are inseparable. So I want to start with, by looking at a passage um, from the beginning of book seven this is uh, 518 between B and C is where it starts. It's right after the image of the cave. And Socrates here is talking about true education. Then if this is true, I said, we must hold the following about these things. Education is not what the professions of certain men asserted to be. They presumably assert that they put into the soul knowledge that isn't in it 
as though they were putting sight into blind eyes. Yes, Glaucon said, they do indeed assert that. And you might think of uh, Gorgias here, the sophists, this is what they say. But the present argument, Socrates continues, indicates that this power is in the soul of each and that the instrument with which each learns, uh, just as an eye is not able to turn toward the light from the dark without the whole body, must be turned around from that which is coming into being together with the whole soul until it is able to endure looking at what is and the brightest part of that which is. And we affirm that this is the good, don't we? Yes. There would therefore be an art of this turning around, concerned with the way in which this power can most easily and efficiently be turned around, not an art of producing sight in it. Rather, this art, that is the art of education, takes as given that sight is there, but not rightly turned, nor looking at what it ought to look at, and it accomplishes this object. This uh, account of true education, of turning the soul, is um, what Socrates tries to convey through the image of the line. Um, and what he means by this is that it is this turning of the soul is the redirecting of intelligence, or the Greek word here is phronesis, um, which gets translated oftentimes in this book as um, prudence. Um, I think it's better to just talk about intelligence. Um, um, and we'll talk more about this. It's going to be a very important word for us, for us from now on. Plato calls it the, or Socrates calls it here, the eye of the soul. Right? It's, and true education is redirecting intelligence, redirecting the eye of the soul away from what is visible and changeable and esteemed publicly towards what is intelligible and always the same and good. And so that's what the image of the cave is supposed to dramatize. Right? Um, Socrates calls it an image of our nature in its education and want of education at 514a. And he also says um, that it is meant to be connected with what was said before, that's at 517b, i.e. with the divided line, the image of the divided line that closes out book six. So what I've done is I've put those two images together and I'm gonna share that with you now. What I've done is I've put the image of the divided line uh, from the end of book six and I've lined it up with the image of the cave so that you can see the correlations between the portions of the cave and the portions of the line. Um, and I'll talk through this a little bit um, and try to explain what's going on here. So according to the image of the cave, human beings spend their whole lives uh, confined in a cave, um, staring at images, shadows cast on the wall in front of them. These shadows on the wall are shadows, images, 
reflections, or that's what they um, accord with in the image of the divided line. This is the world of doxa. This is the world of how things seem and the opinions that we have about things. These shadows um, and these opinions are cast um, by artifacts or statues or puppets um, that are behind us and that are not the focus of our attention. These artifacts, statues, puppets, um, Socrates lines up with the beings of nature and of techne, of art. The shadows are cast by the sun. Um, well, the, in the cave image, they're cast by the fire, but the fire accords on the, on the divided line with the sun, that is the source of light and life. And I think this should uh, underscore to us that the image of the cave is not an image of a prison that we could break out of in some way. It is an image of our life itself. The, the fire that casts the shadows in the cave is the sun. It's the source of light and life. It is the, so the, the cave is the whole world around us. But that doesn't mean it's the only world. There's also a world outside the cave, a world outside of ours, the one we experience in life. And that world outside of life is the world that contains the intelligible forms, the ede, of the things of nature and of techne. Um, and I'll come back to that. We'll have to spend some time unpacking that. And that world, that world outside of life also has a sun. And that sun is the good itself, which is not the source of light and life, but the source of truth and of knowledge. I want to spend more time now. I want to, what I want to do is I want to work down. I want to spend some time unpacking the discussion of the intelligible section of the divided line, that is, the world outside the cave, the world outside of life. And then on the basis of that, then I want to move back into the cave, back into the world of um, experience. So in the discussion of the divided line, uh, Socrates has this very convoluted set of claims where he says that the um, in the upper section of the divided line, the ones that accord with the intelligible world and our activities um, of intellection, he divides these into two. And he says that one of the things that we do as human beings is that we, we think, um, we use dianoia, uh, we think things through. And when we engage in thinking things through, um, and this is what we do when we practice technique, the various arts, and when we practice mathematics, is we start with certain hypotheses or, or axioms, um, axiomatic presuppositions. We, we take certain definitions of things for granted, and we treat the visible world as if it were an image of these intelligible um, sort of definitions and axioms. 
So there are three versions of this claim uh, in the Republic in Socrates' discussion here. The easiest one maybe to grasp is that of mathematical figures, right? So when we engage in, when we practice geometry, when we, when we do geometry, and we talk about a triangle, well, we take certain definitions of a line, of a point, uh, of a triangle as given. Those are axiomatic, they're, they're basic, they're presuppositions. And then we use visible figures as images for intelligible ideas that um, we nonetheless recognize or transcend those visible images. That is, the chalkboard or the, the, the triangle that you draw on the chalkboard or on, in your notebook is not the thing that you're investigating, right? It's just an image of the thing you're investigating. The thing you're investigating is just an idea. Um, and the image that you draw is an image of that idea. Socrates, though, says that all of the arts, all of the technae are like this. So, for example, when uh, an artisan makes a chair, Socrates thinks that when an artisan makes a chair, they don't treat the chair as that they're making, the empirically existent chair, as the real chair. Rather, they, that chair is an image or a copy of a paradigm, a paradigmatic chair, uh, that they understand and know in their mind. And that is what guides their activity in the making of the empirically existent chair. And so that's slightly stranger, but I still think that makes a certain amount of intuitive sense, right? Um, their empirically existent chairs can take lots and lots of different forms. We still call them chairs um, there's not one true chair in the world somewhere of which all the other chairs are copies. Rather, all of the instances of chairs in the world are empirical instantiations of a, an, a, a sort of definition of a chair. They, they meet the definition, they meet the criteria for being a chair. And even if all of the chairs that exist in the world were destroyed, we could still have that idea of a chair and then recreate chairs on that basis. And that definition or paradigm of a chair is something that we can understand and that is intimately tied to what a chair is for, right? A chair is for human beings to sit in, right? Um, and that's sort of the core around which we design particular chairs. So there's a definition of a chair uh, that's intelligible to the mind. Um, and then we can think about how best to realize that definition in real world practice.
The third one is weirder. Um, and this is going to be, uh, this is going to be a trickier thing. Socrates also says that the same thing applies to natural beings. But I don't think he means that, um, for example, a, a deer is only a copy, an empirical copy of a really existing definition or paradigm of a deer, which is purely intelligible. Rather, I think what he's talking about um, comes a little later, or he, he makes it clearer a little later. I'm going to get rid of the picture here and, and read you a text. This is on, so this is 523D. Um, well, it starts actually 523C. He's talking about how certain sorts of sensations call the activity of the intellect into being, or, or they activate uh, intellect. And what he says is um, here, he gives this example. If you hold up three fingers, I guess he says the smallest, the second and the middle. And he says, well, okay, this is it. Uh, 523D, he says, surely each of them looks equally like a finger, right? Um, and in this respect, it makes no difference whether it's seen in the middle or on the extremes, whether it's white or black, whether it's thick or thin or anything else of, of the sort. In all these things, the soul of the many, that is of you know, everybody, the common person, is not compelled to ask the intellect what a finger is. There's no confusion. You look at it and you know that's a finger. For the sight at no point indicates to the soul that the finger is at the same time the opposite of a finger. But then he says that nonetheless, there is a sort of way that the intellect can come into it. It's, the intellect is not activated by the question of what a finger is. Eyesight alone teaches you that. But the intellect is engaged because so um, is a finger, is one of these fingers big? Is one of them little? Well, um, in comparison to one another, you know, this one is bigger and this one is littler. But in, if I just have those two up, then this one seems little. But if I have just those two up, then this one, I can't wiggle it anymore, so it seems big. Right, so big and little, what is big and what is little is not settled by sensation alone. Right, um, and instead we have to think about what big and little are. He says the same thing about thick and thin and soft and hard. So when Socrates, I think, try to draw a lesson out of this. Um, when Socrates talks about natural beings, um, treating natural beings as if they were images of intelligible things, he's not talking about treating fingers as if they were intelligible in images of the form of a finger, like the definition of a finger, which is grasped purely with the mind. 
Rather, he's saying that our sensations of natural things reveal to us opposites. Opposites which are not graspable purely by sensation. So the distinction between hard and soft, between thick and thin, between big and little, and between one and many, that's going to be an important one. Um, those distinctions are things that we can only understand intelligible, intelligibly. We have to ask after the definition of the opposites. And Socrates thinks this is what pushes us in the direction of trying to understand the sensible world through an intellectual process of grasping um, oneness and manyness, number, mathematics, etc. And this is what Socrates thinks is the point of a true education. The true education is the one that turns you from the sensible world to these intelligible properties, right? Um, and that's, that's a proper mathematical education, right? It teaches you to see the visible world as a complex set of images of intelligible ideas. But um, at the same time, this is not uh, clearly, this is not Socrates or Plato's main concern, right? Socrates um, doesn't go around asking people, what is thick? What is thin? Do we really understand thickness? Well, how would you defi define thickness? How would you define thinness? It, that's not what he talks about, right? <laughs> um, thank goodness. That would be kind of boring, I think. Um, Popular opinion doesn't bestow honor on those who are good at sensing hard and soft or good at sensing thick and thin, right? The shadows that are cast on the wall over which people argue um, are not the images of, are not the shadows of thickness. They're the, they're the shadows of justice and injustice, of courage and cowardice of friendship and enmity, of pleasure and pain. These are the things, these are the oppositions that Socrates is interested in, right? Those are the ones that are actually the goal of this mathematical education. So mathematics prepares you to investigate those things, not because justice is mathematical, <laughs> but because um, mathematics teaches you to see in the natural world uh, the oppositions between intelligible um, opposites. And that process then teaches you to investigate the important questions like what is justice, what is injustice, what is piety, what is impiety, etc. So, okay, then let's step back for a second. Um, this has all been the discussion of Dianoia. That's the, the lower segment of the intelligible part of the um, divided line. And if we go back to the picture, um, that is what accords with sort of the, the, the world above the fire, right? When you've exited the cave, 
um, and you are looking around at the, the world around you, right? It's the first part of the world outside of the world of sensation. And this seems to be the world in which we talk about axioms and definitions, in which we talk about um, the functions of artifacts, um, and what things are for, um, and hence about, and, and hence that has a reference to human life and human needs, and in which we talk about fundamental oppositions, pairs of opposites. But then Socrates says there's another kind of inquiry, another kind of, of intellectual activity above that. This is the activity of noose, of mind itself. And what he says about this is perhaps even more perplexing. He says that what happens here is we take the hypotheses that we had taken for granted by, were taken for granted by Dionoia by thinking, and we start asking, well, what is this, right? We inquire, we treat those hypotheses as hypotheses. Uh, that is, we don't take them as given, but rather we inquire into them, right? As something posited and we, and we ask what they are. And this would seem to then have a three-part structure just like the three-part structure of, of thinking, right? This is where we inquire into the fundamentals of mathematics. This is where we inquire into the fundamentals of techne, that is, into human nature and the soul. And this is also where we inquire into the fundamental conceptual opposites, the aspects under which the world reveals itself to thought. And this is going to bring us, Socrates thinks, to the discussion of the good. Because for Socrates, um, and I think this is true for Plato too, the highest and most fundamental of the aspects under which the world reveals itself to thought, the most fundamental of these is the, the opposition between good and bad. Okay. Because, and this is a very strange thing to say, but for, according to Socrates, insofar as the world is intelligible at all, it is, just to that extent, good. And just to that extent, it is susceptible to being spoken of truly. The analogy between the sun and the good is really important here. The good so that the sun is the source of light, and it's by means of the light from the sun that we're able to see anything at all. It's what makes things visible. The good, analogously, is the source of truth. It is in the light of the good that we, only in the light of the good, that we are able to know anything. And therefore, it is only in the light of the good that we are able to conceive of any being at all. Outside of that, there is only sensation, seeming, and opinion. I'll try to make that clearer by means of a contrast. We have a tendency to treat um, what is true 
and what is factual as equivalent, right? What are the facts of the case? What's true? Like that, it doesn't seem strange for us to treat those two things as basically synonymous. For Socrates, truth is not facts and facts are not true. Facts are agreed upon and authoritative seeming or opinion. Okay. There's not an opposition between fact and opinion in Socrates. Um, a fact is an opinion. A fact is just an opinion that is authoritative and that we all agree on. It's an intersubjectively validated fact. But, or an intersubjectively validated opinion. There's no difference fundamentally between an opinion and a fact. A fact is just a special kind of opinion. Um, when we say this is a fact, what we're saying is this is how this should appear to anyone whose body and mind are in normal working order, right? Uh, when we say um, this is a fact, we're saying you ought to agree that this is the case. So Socrates is not opposed to facts or to factual claims. Um, he's just not that interested in them. Empirical inquiry and agreement about facts, as I think for Socrates, those things, those presuppose that the inquirers have well-ordered souls. Right? Um, you can't argue someone into acknowledging facts that their deepest desires don't want them to acknowledge. Um, and so Socrates takes this to the end of the line, I think, he, and implies that only a just person can judge appearances well. And this is the kicker, only a philosopher can be truly just. So only a philosopher can really judge the facts of the world. Um, um, and because only they have the sort of well-ordered soul that would actually be able to discern um, uh, opinions and appearances correctly. But precisely by virtue of the fact that they're a philosopher, they're not that interested in doing so. Right? They're not interested in settling our disputes about, um, about facts. Let's take an analogy to present day concerns. Um, when, okay, so lots of people worry about social media, right? <laughs> and the internet, right? And when people worry about the social, about social media, when people worry about the internet, oftentimes what they worry about are things like uh, perpetual distraction, right? Um, they worry about the economy of esteem and attention, the way people get caught up in that economy of esteem and attention. They worry about um, social media's compulsive or addictive character, right? Um, about the impulsiveness that it encourages in us. They worry about the possibility that some people are controlling uh, the attention of others. 
all of these things that we worry about, about social media, uh, the Greeks worried about, about public speech. <laughs> like public assemblies, uh, publicly performed plays, they had all the same worries about these things, right? About law courts, about um, you know, the ecclesia, about the rise of rhetoric. So all of these things sort of give rise to a set of fantasies and nightmares about control, right? That, so some of these might be dreams, in fact. Um, you know, you can imagine a, uh, you know, a benevolent sort of Gorgias type figure who um, doesn't want to rule over others, but does want to, you know, satisfy everyone's desires or nudge everyone in the direction of true um, facts uh, and, and rational opinions. On the other hand, you have people who fear any sort of Gorgias-like power um, and you know, that worry about people, you know, hijacking the minds of others or worry about a handful of people steering the thoughts of billions of others. Right. Worry about controlling people's attention. Right. Um, so uh, the a question came up in the chat about whether um, the Greeks have their own version of fake news um, in public discourse. And I mean, I think, you know, Fake news is just the, the latest iteration of a concern about, about rumor, about gossip, um, et cetera, that, um, that has been around for a very long time. Right? Um, there's the, I mean, it's perhaps apocryphally uh, attributed to, to um, um, Mark Twain, that uh, the, the claim that a lie can make it halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on, right? This, this notion that um, um, lies, rumors, false reports spread like wildfire, whereas um, truth is slow and ponderous and, and isn't able to keep up. I mean, these are, these are incredibly old concerns and I think they're, they're um, you know, they lurk in the background uh, in our concerns today. Um, and certainly the Greeks had these sorts of concerns also. Um, and I think they were just the concerns about, about the way in which um, a world of speech is one in which um, appearances travel um, and uh, are taken up in a way that is not um, susceptible to um, sort of rigorous validation, right? And I think the Socratic version of this worry, I mean, the Socratic version of this worry is not that Gorgias is going to be able to control the masses, right? Or that a, a gifted rhetor, uh, rhetorician is going to be able to um, draw everyone's attention in exactly the way they want and, and hold the masses um, in their sway. The Socratic um, concern is a little different. 
the Socratic concern is that this economy of attention in public discourse privileges our impulses over our intentions, right? Um, the, uh, and so, you know, even the designers of social media are responding to the incentives of the advertising economy, right? That, so the Socratic concern is that no one is in control, right? Precisely, um, it is everyone chasing the attention of others and the desires uh, um, that happen to be circulating. And in the face of this concern, Socrates has a, uh, a proposal, um, and this is something that we'll have to continue talking about, but he has this proposal for um, reforming the city so that it is in some sense modeled on the good. Uh, he says, this is at 540B, uh, this is at the end of his discussion, or you know, near the end of his discussion of education. He says that after having um, you know, gone through this elaborate philosophical education and, and studied the forms themselves, that the philosopher that in the function, in the, the role of the philosopher king, would have to go back into the city and, and use the good as a, a paradigm for ordering the city, for ordering private men, and for ordering themselves. So at 540B, sorry. And what I want to point out, I don't want to try to explain what that might mean. I merely want to point out a little problem with this um, and a, a change in the way Socrates is talking. Because up till this point, uh, in books two, three, four, and five, and six even, the, the paradigm that Socrates has been using for talking about the city has been the soul, right? Um, he's been talking about the three forms that are in the soul and the way in which those are um, um, like analogous to the three classes in the city. And he's sown doubts about how seriously to take this um, treating the soul and city as, as models of one another. So at uh, 504a um, through 505a, he had this weird little passage where he said, well, um, actually getting the soul right would require a longer road than the one we can take now. Um, and he said there that nothing incomplete is a measure of anything. Um, like just a cryptic claim. I just want to flag it as he, he's sowing doubts that this model is one that he really wants to really wants to put forward um, strongly. But it's what it's been the 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 paradigm that's been in use, right? So um, the same forms and dispositions are in the soul as in the city. He said at four thirty-five D, right? And he said that they come to be in the city from being in the souls of private persons. Right? This is where thumos, lokismos, and epithumia come from. And furthermore, uh, the 
he has said that, and we've talked about this, right? Justice, wisdom, moderation, and courage are said to be in the soul and in the city insofar as these three forms are in good condition are, and are in the proper interrelation with one another, right? But what I want to note is that the idea of the good is not in the soul. The eye of the soul, phronesis, sees or knows anything only insofar as the known object is revealed by the good and insofar as it, the, as intelligence, the phronesis, is oriented in the right direction and uncorrupted. So that seems to indicate that, uh, like, the, I mean, the form of the good is necessarily outside of the soul. And it's also necessarily outside of the city, right? Um, it's not something that's internal to the relations uh, within the soul or the city. And that means that Socrates seems to be indicating here the need for um, a transcendent standard or a transcendent paradigm for both the well-being of the soul and the well-being of the city. That the city um, and proper political ordering cannot just be about establishing the correct relationship amongst the parts of the city and correct the correct ordering of the soul living well can't just be about establishing the interrelations amongst one's desires, one's thumos, and one's logismos. But rather, each of those things has to, in some sense, take a reference from or um, take orient its orientation from something outside itself. Um, this, goes, this is going to go back to a question that was asked um, a few times, uh, a few classes ago about um, logismos, because um, it seems as if logismos is, you know, just about ordering desires and, and, and finding some sort of being a servant to the desires. But the question was, that, you know, is there, is there not going to be something, you know, religious or akin to religion that's going to give a sort of higher purpose to life? Or is it just going to be about sort of ordering the various components of life. And now I think we're seeing why the, that for Socrates and Plato, um, no, there is something, there is something transcendent. And that transcendent thing is not God, it's the good, right? Uh, small ch change, one letter difference, but uh, we'll have to ask whether that one letter difference is an important difference or not.